It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today. We discuss the latest updates from the front lines as Ukraine's long-anticipated counteroffensive gets underway. We also bring you updates from flooded Kherson, where our correspondent Colin Freeman has been talking to locals and assessing the damage as waters engulf the region. And finally, I speak to Serhi Jadan, Ukrainian writer and musician, about his work ahead of a gig in London. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday the 9th of June, one year and 105 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our Associate Editor for Defence, Dominic Nichols, Russia correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva, and Foreign correspondent Colin Freeman, speaking from Hazan. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Sure. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. Let's start with the the fighting. Okay, President Zelensky yesterday, he, he he was talking about the results of the heavy fighting in the Donetsk region, he was did his nightly address on the train back from the flooded areas around Herzon, where he'd been visiting. He said there is very heavy fighting in Donetsk region, but there are results, and I'm grateful to those who achieved these results. Well done in Bakhmut, step by step. Now we think Ukraine has sent Western tanks into into the battle in the south. There have been reports of Leopard two. Um, tanks around the Zaporizhia region. I've not seen any of those images myself, but they are. They are the reports are out there, including reports of a couple of them have been knocked out. I mean, be careful with that. I mean, tanks tanks break down, tanks fall into ditches. I've I've done both of those things, and and they look they can look quite dramatic, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean the tank has been has been destroyed. So reports of there's already two tanks destroyed, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Just just treat with caution in the very very early stages of this. Um, U.S. officials are saying saying that Russia has put up stiff resistance, their words, and Ukrainians have suffered losses. This is to be expected. There will be battlefield reversals. We need to be careful about managing expectations that this is going to be a, a quick fight or that any obvious games gains are going to be made swiftly. That is possible, of course. We saw that around Kharkiv last year. But that's that's the exception, I would suggest, in military activity rather than the norm. And there are very formidable Russian defensive belts through the areas that, that Ukraine seem to be trying to push. So very early days of the fighting. We think this uh, if this is the counteroffensive and I think, yeah, I think we should get beyond. Is it isn't it? I mean, there's a hell of a lot of fighting going on. I argued some time ago that the counteroffensive had been underway for some time with the whole psychology and shaping operations. So, you know, let's just say it, 
it started. If so, it started in earnest probably last weekend at some point. Not entirely sure because the operational security has been so good by Ukraine that the news is very scant. We're doing a lot of work from the from Russian telegram channels. And of course, there's the, the obvious health warning there. So we're not exactly sure when it started. Not exactly sure what's going on. Treat all the information you receive, as I always say, including from us, with caution and, um, and, and verify it from other sources as much as you can. But it, it looks as if Ukraine at the moment is trying to advance on three axes. So this is all, all in, the, in the southeast of the country. So the, so the east and the northeast, so Kharkiv area, not huge advances there. South, not huge advances there because it's mostly underwater. So I'm talking about the southeast of the, of the country. It's still a huge, huge line, but that's the bit of the country we're talking about. And in there, there seem to be now three axes. Firstly, going directly east through Bakhmut. Secondly, going southeast through kind of Vuladar, which is 40Ks-ish west of Donetsk. And then finally, south through uh, looking, aiming to go to, to the town of the city of uh, Tokmak. That's a further 80K southwest of Donetsk. It's about 60K southeast of, of Zaporizhia. There's certainly been more reports of fighting in the vicinity of Orkhiv, this is 20 k's north of Tokmak and on the only decent road in that in that area. That would be the route south towards Tokmak and then beyond that, Militopol and the Sea of Azov. So we said many times the, what Ukraine would want to do ideally is sever that land bridge, the Russian land bridge, which involves going straight south through Tokmak, Militopol to the Sea of Azov. And guess what? Of course, the Russians know that. So that's a very, very heavily defended area. The city of Tokmak is a major east-west road and rail hub. Russia is using it to supply forces further west. So imagine the forces that have come out of Crimea and headed up into the sort of Hezon area. They are being supplied through Crimea and through road and rail east-west through the city of Tokmak. Now, I, I, I sort of linger on that city. I'm suggesting that we we get to know that name. I think we're going to hear a lot more about it, the same as we are familiar with Bakhmut now. I think we're also going to become familiar with Tokmak. So um, so stick it in your head. It's going to feature again. It's not that big, half the size of Bakhmut. And uh, we've got to be clear that the name is also, it's a city and it's also the district which in, within which it sits. So be careful of drawing too many conclusions from footage or reports that reference Tokmak. It might be the city, it might be the wider district. There is footage out there already of a Russian prisoner of war saying he'd, he'd surrendered in the area of. So, you know, some people have said, oh, my God, they're, they're already near the city. You know, maybe not. It might just be the, the upper reaches of the district, which is some distance away from the city. So be very careful with the information you receive. Now, Mike Martin, our friend, who, um, among other things, he's a, he's a senior fellow at um, war studies at the King's, King's College here in London. He has suggested that the activity around Bakhmut, so that's in the the furthest north bit of the of these three axes, the, the action around Bakhmut, he suggests, is to drive a wedge. Ukrainians trying to drive a wedge between the Wagner group, the Chechens that are now fighting there, and the regular Russian MOD forces. We know the tensions between those organizations we've spoken about them many many times mike is suggesting that that that's where ukraine is really pressing and they are having some success ukraine advancing to the north and south of bakhmut 
He's also suggesting Vuladar, so that second axis, one going southeast, I'm suggesting. He says that's that's been weakened over recent months with, with constant destruction of, of, in particular, artillery pieces, Russian artillery pieces, ammunition depots. And he says it is less well defended, partly because of that and partly because it's not it's not really of those other two, east to Bakhmut, south to Melitopol, you know, Vuladar is, is is not really on the way to anywhere. You could go down to Mariupol, but it's a it's a long, long way. So he's suggesting that's a that's a weakened axis and less well defended. But of course, if Ukraine can get through there, it's a longer route to the coast, but would equally sever that that road bridge. But he's suggesting that Tokmak is the main effort for now. And mil- military folk use the term main main effort. It does mean something. That's if something if if a if an attack or a, a geographic area or a a force is designated by the commander as the main effort then that activity gets the gets the choice of the resources or gets the the um any reinforcements that are there they'll get the lion's share of them so so you always have to identify the the main effort because that means you can draw on the resource or you certainly get first dibs now this can all change it can all change very very quickly one of the things we think Ukraine is trying to do is is pushing, you know, probing against the Russian lines to see which of these axes is is more fruitful. And therefore, if they had a breakthrough somewhere, that would then likely become exploited. They would try to push there. You reinforce success. You don't reinforce failure. So they would likely try and reinforce an axis that proved fruitful. And that then may become, may be designated the main effort. You don't chop and change, you know, on a dime because... Sorry, to borrow an expression from our American cousins because it, you know, it takes a lot to do this. Think about the logistic support if you're suddenly saying, right, actually fellas, we're not going southeast, the main effort is east it takes a lot to shift your logistic and all the rest of it lines so you don't you don't just say, right, Tuesday, main effort's going to be south, Wednesday, main effort's east it doesn't work like that, but it can change is what I'm saying, you need to be flexible Mike is suggesting that, that Ukraine have, have yet to deploy their full force we're still very, very early in this and that's highly likely correct i think because they've not yet had a chance to assess the progress and see which area is really bearing fruit okay now moving on other updates ukraine's air force said it shot down so last night shot down four cruise missiles out of six and 10 drones out of 16 fired by russia across the across the country last night including the towns of zviahel this is 150 k's west of kiev and chikazi this is on the western or the right bank of the Dnipro River, about 150k southeast of Kiev, and uh, Uman, 200 kilometers south of Kiev. Now, the Air Force said it also, two other cruise missiles were fired and hit civilian areas in central Ukraine in an earlier attack last night, and there was shelling in Huliapol, apologies, 60k's east of Zaporizhia, which hit a hospital, and there were reports of, of killed and injured there. Ukraine, or sorry, a, a, a drone has hit a residential building in Voronezh. This is inside Russia, 200, 200 kilometers northeast of Kharkiv, well well inside Russia, 100 and something miles inside Russia. There's footage on social media. You'll see, you'll see it reportedly injured too. The footage shows this drone sort of heading, it's probably at about 500 feet, 1,000 feet, something like that, heading in the direction of a of an airfield there, and then it suddenly just either loses power or or spanks in. The suggestions are that it was it was interdicted, or you know, it was attacked by electronic warfare. Its signal was jammed, and so it just it, it fell out of the sky, hit the residential block. As I say, uh, reports it was injured too, and um, just a couple more quickies. 
uh, Josep Borrell, who's the EU foreign policy chief, he has said everything indicates, his words, everything indicates Russia was behind the, the dam breach, Novokokovka dam, a few days ago. He said the dam was not bombed. It was destroyed by explosives installed in the areas where the turbines are located. This area is under Russian control. He said that on Spanish television. He went on, I wasn't there to find out who did it, but everything seems to indicate that if it took place in an area under Russian control, it is difficult to believe it could have been someone else. Now, I've said before, I think Russia is responsible either because of direct military action or by running the plant incompetently. But I I do sound a note of caution and note the slight contradiction in Mr. Burrell's comments there for you to make your own mind up on when he says, you know, destroyed by explosives installed in areas where the turbines are, that doesn't exactly sit alongside everything seems to indicate and difficult to believe it could have been someone else. So those those comments don't necessarily exactly sit next to each other. I, I mentioned that to you so that you can you can have a look at it, make your own mind up. I, I say I, I believe Russia was responsible for that dam failing. And just finally, Reuters have their reporting that Ukraine's domestic security service said today that it had intercepted a telephone call but showing a Russian sabotage group had blown up the the dam. So, you know, again, take that as, as you wish. Reuters reporting that today. And I'll take a pause there. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you for giving us a bit of the lay of the land in the southeast and the east on a very confusing day when, as you said, we don't still have a lot of information and a lot of information is still coming out. So thanks for helping us make sense of that. Colin Freeman, can I go to you? Colin, you're down in Hassan. It, you, you've been you know, across the, the, the region is completely flooded. What, what have you seen and where have you been? Well, yes, as you say, the region is completely flooded. The easiest way I can describe it really is to imagine, invite listeners to think of a kind of Venice, but with a sort of Soviet touch. Kherson's outlying suburbs where the um, where most of the flooding is, a lot of them are big old Soviet housing blocks from the 1970s and 1980s and um, they are now they've now got um, water lapping around around their lower reaches they're sort of often reaching up to about the first um, flooding certainly the, the ground floors and sometimes also the second floors as well and um, the streets in between them are now effectively canals and you've got uh, motorboats sailing up and down trying to rescue people who are stranded rather than the gondoliers that you might have in uh, somewhere like um, Venice. It's, 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 a, it's a very strange picture indeed. Today we've actually been out of Curson itself and we went to uh, a village on the outskirts of Curson. Normally, this village, you know, like about a mile outside of the, the city's outskirts. To get there, you would just um, traipse across a rather nice meadow through some uh, through some trees and cross a little uh, a little bridge over a small, nearly dried up riverbed. Actually, that is normally more, no more than about three or four three or four meters wide. Since the flooding started, that riverbed, which is on a river that is a, a tributary to the Dnipro, a rather small tributary, that riverbed has been flooded with water and the entire meadow is now under four or five metres deep of water. It's become basically a lake. And the outlying village that we visited has effectively become an island. And so what the locals have done, 
rather resourcefully is set up their own little ferry service and uh, it shows you sort of how, how quick people are to respond to this kind of thing it's just a dinghy rowed by a local chap but already it's running from 7am in the morning right through till 7 in the evening departures every hour on the hour or so just rowing folk back and forth um, across to this to to, the, to this village, come Ireland, so that they can reach the, the the main city of Kherson, do their shopping, come and go, and generally do their business. Colin, can I ask? Uh, you've been talking to lots of the locals in the region. What are they telling you? What's their experience been? Well, obviously, the, the, this is yet another hardship to bear on top of, I think it was eight months of Russian occupation last year. Um, Kherson was the first major city to fall under Russian occupation uh, in, uh, in in March of last year. Spent eight months in Russian control, during which time uh, people had a very rough ordeal here. There was a lot of people were arrested and imprisoned. Many people tortured. Quite a few disappeared altogether. At one point, the, the, the economy here virtually collapsed. Then Kherson was was liberated back in November. I say liberated. The Russian troops pulled out under strong pressure from Ukrainian forces. Since then, the city has, has been under constant shell fire because what the Russians did when they lay, left was really was to pull back over to the east side of the river Dnipro and simply shell the city from afar rather than actually controlling it. And so despite no longer being in Russian control since November, it's not really been a place to, that, that many people have returned to. In fact, I think the, the population has actually shrunk even further since the since November because of the shelling. Nonetheless, there are quite a lot of people who have stuck here throughout all that. Now they've got this flooding to contend with as well. You might expect a lot of people to sort of say, well, this, this is the last straw. But actually, the, the folk who've been here, I would, I would say it's probably maybe between... 10 and 20% of the normal of the city's normal population they're fairly hardy people and you know once you've been through a war like the the war that Ukraine's been through um, in 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 the last year and a half and you've now got flooding in your house i don't think this is, this is the moment that sort of that serves as the straw that breaks the donkey's back particularly people are just shrugging they're getting on with their lives they're moving out temporarily if they have to to a neighbor's house further away from the Dnipro river or perhaps a neighbor's flat in a slightly higher rise slightly further up the apartment block that they might be living in on a higher story and essentially they're waiting for the tide waters just to go the as it happens when we were out this morning the at the sort of impromptu uh, harbor at the edge of this village we went to which is marked by a few tires and some uh, some boarding planks at the end of a what is normally just a, a country road there is a sort of somebody's been keeping track of the the high water mark there and um, I think the high water mark was at some point yesterday. And we, we noticed that um, at just before 6 a.m. this morning, there'd been a reading and also at, I think, 8 p.m. last night. And in that time, the water had receded by something like a foot. So there was a sense now that the, um, the, 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 work, that the flooding may at least have reached its height, although clearly with you know five, six metres of water 
flooding in some areas the the, the real work is going to be when what, what is going to be when the water finally drains away and all the cleanup operation has to start and so on but i don't think there's any sense really of people deciding that you know there is a, this is enough enough is enough and we're going to be leaving um curse on altogether uh, on the contrary people on the ferry were sort of saying this is yet another little bit of our you know sort of community volunteering activity that makes us all feel you know pretty proud to be ukrainian Colin, we've heard quite a few reports of shelling of the rescue efforts in Kherson. Um, have you heard anything about that? Have you seen anything? Yes, I heard it very, very loudly yesterday. We were down in the in this sort of central Kherson district, where there is an area known as the island, which again is an area of, of Soviet era housing on on a kind of very low lying sort of peninsula that runs off sort of a kind of harbour dockland area. Think of perhaps of docklands in the you know in the east end of London, for example, and uh, or, the, or the Isle of Dogs. And um, that that area was completely flooded. It's one of these places where there, there are tower blocks sort of effectively sticking up out of the water. And um, from the 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 riverbank that we were we, we were we were stood at, there were various rescue boats sailing out over in toward over up towards the island and picking people up and pets up and so on and ferrying them back. And as we were watching that, there was a a series of missiles at mortars i think they were i was told they were landed quite near us forcing us to run for cover fired from the russian controlled side of the river dnipro you, you get you you hear quite a lot of artillery fire here but generally speaking it's usually outgoing fire the incoming russian fire doesn't normally land close into the city center this time it did and you could tell that the you know the ukrainian troops who were hanging about were, were clearly worried because they forced us all to take cover in a building the reason for this shelling of this particular humanitarian operation we think is because of President Volodymyr Zelensky had visited the area, that that exact area where we were more or less just about an hour beforehand on a flying visit, wasn't publicised in advance, and he'd gone by the time most of us knew that he'd even been there. But the moment news of his visit was posted by his office on social media, I think that's the moment at which the, the Russians decided to retaliate. And I think within about an hour, these shells were landing very much in the area that he had uh, he, he had been touring. So yeah, that there's it, it's certainly still an air, a, a, a battlefield, Kherson, and despite the humanitarian efforts, um, neither side really seems to be interested in, um, in 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 any kind of ceasefire while the while the efforts to kind of patch up this disaster are ongoing. Well, thank you very much, Colin. Best of luck with your reporting and do stay safe. Natalia Vasilyeva, Russia correspondent, can we go to you? Dom gave us a rundown of what we think we know so far about the long-anticipated counteroffensive. Can I ask you just to start by telling us a little bit about the reaction in in Russia and on on state media? What, What have we seen? Hi, David, and hi, everyone. Yeah, it's, I mean, following Russian media often feels like getting a plunge into a parallel reality that has nothing to do with what is actually happening. I would say that today it feels even more so um, if you watch Russian TV or go to state media, the message is pretty much everything is under control. 
nothing to see here moving on one of russia's most popular or rather i would say like most widely known propagandists on a show that came out on tv just just a couple of hours ago was rattling out figures about the number of german tanks that russia destroyed about the um, casualties that, that Ukraine has sustained. They do, the Russians do admit that there's a counteroffensive going on. They do talk about fierce fighting and, at several points um, on the front line. But the overall message is that everything is under control. The Ukrainians are attacking, but Russia is standing strong and uh, has been successful in repelling those attacks. Again, Russian state TV has been showing images of um, uh, Ukrainian weaponry and tanks being destroyed. Some of that imagery has already been debunked as fakes or as something that showed tractors or some kind of agricultural equipment rather than actual tanks. But yes, here you go. Thanks, Natalia. Can I ask, you've written up a story for the website about Margarita Simonian, who obviously we've, we've, we've covered quite a few times, and she's one of the sort of chief propagandists on state media. She came out with an interesting suggestion saying that Putin should freeze the war as Ukraine is, quote, too strong. That feels like quite a surprising thing for her to say. What, what did you make of it? Yes, exactly. I would say it's it's not that her her stance is particularly surprising. I mean, given the fact that Russia has been bogged down in this was 16 months, sorry, but also the fact that she is one of the most outspoken proponents of the war. She was changing it when it started. Before it started, she openly called on Russian leadership to, quote, whack Washington with a missile strike. And on average, she has been more aggressive and calling for more decisive act- actions in Ukraine compared to your average Russian pro-Kremlin pundit. But we're hearing things that could could at least be reflecting some use from the Kremlin, as she said on a TV show earlier this week that... Um, maybe it would be a good idea to, quote, freeze the conflict and, again, quote, stay where we are. The assumption that she's made is that Ukraine has been receiving a lot of Western weaponry, that if Russia wanted to properly respond, it would have to respond not only against Ukrainian targets, but against targets in Europe and elsewhere, thus sparking a third world war that presumably nobody wants. So she basically suggested freezing the conflict, staying where where they are, where the Russian troops are, and even as she put it, hold voting in disputed territories. Now, now that particular remark caused quite a backlash among Russian pro-war commentators who obviously started to criticize her over the very use of the word disputed, because these are the territories that Russia recognized as its own at the end of last year. Vladimir Putin signed a degree degree to, to make those areas part of Russia, even the areas which are now not under Russian control, including the city of Kherson. But yeah, here you go. Obviously, quite an interesting thing to watch. It's from what I understand, it doesn't mean that, you know, the Kremlin is going to stop the war here and now, but it does reflect general weariness um, of with the war in the Russian establishment. And um, one possible explanation for that would be that Simonian is being used to put out the fillers to sort of probe uh, public opinion to see is this something that Russians would be with. They view it as a defeat by Vladimir Putin. If, if this, again, like if, if Russia were to at least try to stop the war, as she suggested. 
Natalia, just one more question from me. I know over the past few days you've been doing a lot of reporting with Roland on um, the reaction to the flooding caused by the destruction of the Hakovka Dam. Would you like to add anything to some of the things that, uh, that Colin was saying earlier? What, what have you been seeing in your reporting on, on the Russian controlled side of the river? Sure. Obviously, I'm I'm not on the ground, but I've been talking on the phone with people on the other side of of, of the of the front line. The situation all around Dnipro obviously is very dire, and and, and Colin Colin is there and can testify. But um, with the Ukrainian side of the the right bank of the river. Um, at least there is a hope that help is coming. International aid organizations can get there. There are, you know, aid groups, journalists, that it's more or less trans- transparent and transparent and people can get help. From what I can see, the situation on the left bank of the Dnipro, on the Russian-controlled bank, is much more dire. There is no, Russia doesn't allow, obviously, any international help. Locals have been struggling for, for, for help and they they Sort of the most heartbreaking kind of stories that I've been hearing in recent days is that people are left to, essentially left to their own devices. Locals are trying to source dinghies and boats somewhere to, to evacuate people out. Volunteers have been putting together user-generated maps where they would map uh, uh, people asking for help. And I, I spoke to a couple of people who are looking to evacuate their relatives. There's very little... A, there's very little hope. There's an expectation that some of them may have died already, or they would have they would die before they wait for help. Because you know people have been stuck on rooftops, they've been stuck in in, in cellars waiting for help. There obviously there's little or no um, food supply, and uh, they are losing their means of communications as you know their phone batteries running out. There have been reports about Russian troops not allowing some people to leave some of the Russia-controlled villages, including uh, the village of Oleshke. Um, I spoke to one person who confirmed those reports. I know that several, two, at least two Russian media outlets spoke to other people confirming those reports. Obviously, that's, it's just a heartbreaking situation. And again, like if, if you look at, at the official Russian media narrative, they're describing it as flooding. They're basically describing it as a minor accident that, you know, is going to go away soon. The head of the Kremlin administrations recently visited the Russian-occupied part of Kherson, shook hand with some locals, told them, um, quote, the, the water is going to go away in a week. And um, these are the most vulnerable people who are not getting any help. There's very little publicity because there's no access for international NGOs and, and journalists. And um, again, we I think we have yet to discover what the actual, I'm not even talking about the environmental toll, but what the human toll of that catastrophe will be. Because so far, Russians have reported nine people killed on, on their side. But I imagine that when the water subsides, those figures would be much higher and probably quite shocking. Thank you very much, Natalia. Dom, I believe you have a couple of questions, if that's all right, Natalia. Dom Nichols. Thanks, David. Hi, Natalia. Lovely to uh, hear from you again. A couple of quickies, if I may. So we've seen reports of of infighting, kind of Yevgeny Prigozhin sounding off against the Chechens and the MOD, and the, you've then got the Russian mill blogging community who are, who are chopping in as well. Do, do you detect that this is actually breaking through at all into Russian media or, or you know, societal conversations? And do you detect any sign of nerves from Russian society about these partisan attacks, the irregular warfare, the irregular attacks we're seeing and, and, and what have you? Are they having any, any impact whatsoever? Thanks. 
Thanks for that. Yeah, obviously, the, the, I, I would like to start with the last questions. Those attacks are hitting a nerve. And there are very few tools we have left to assess public opinion, sort of to take the temperature. And one of them is this sort of quite obscure but very useful opinion poll that a state-owned uh, poster has been holding for the past two years or so, even, even longer, even way before the war. And the one question they're asking to people is, what is the prevalent mood among your um, friends and um, relatives? And uh, basically, the number of replies with the answer anxiety and depression has been on a rise since since those attacks started, since the Ukraine-led attack on Belgorod across the border into Russia, since the drone attacks in Moscow. So we we have... I would say we we have we have tools we have some research to back up that 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 anxiety is definitely on on a rise in Russia apart from anecdotal evidence I think which is obviously there the general the general opinion is that those attacks like like the the attack on Belgrade last month shows that the government is completely failing in its most basic task which is to to protect Russia's own territory in terms of Yevgeny Prigozhin and fighting with the defense ministry again this is not something that you will find out about from state tv there's quite a bit about it, it it's it's quite widely covered by sort of state-controlled media, but with, with a smaller reach compared to state television. Again, which is, I recently saw quite an interesting Vox Pops survey done on the streets of Moscow, where people were simply asked, do you know who Evgeny Prigozhin is and what do you think of him? And I was quite shocked, actually, to discover that a lot of people who were approached on the street didn't even know who he was. So I would say that uh, Evgeny Prigozhin has been extremely busy creating a media persona for himself and he's been quite successful with that but it doesn't seem that he's getting through to that many russians at this point oh, interesting and one last one if i may so you're in in istanbul i believe what's the mood there after the presidential election erdogan's been been re-elected turkey's have got a very interesting position in this war has, has uh, any sign of, of a shift in turkey's policy or any other positions regarding the war since the uh, since the election result in terms of the war in ukraine i would say no i think the biggest issue here right now and it's something that almost cost erdogan a re-election is is the economy and is and uh, the skyrocketing inflation that we've been seeing here for the past two years so there's quite a lot of focus on that they've only just recently appointed a new central bank governor so it looks like erdogan is, is quite busy sorting out things at home if um if he wants to go if he wants to give back to the voters that gave him another confidence vote so so to speak so right now i'm not not seeing any change in his position on ukraine thank you very much dom nichols and natalia vasilieva for your answers i think we've come to the end of our time today unless dom do you have any more updates from your side well no the only update just broken japan has uh, has prov- offered to provide 5 million dollars in humanitarian aid for for ukraine for the uh, for the the effort down in Herzon. but uh, yeah that's in the last hour japanese prime minister mr kishida he spoke to president zelensky today directly 5 million dollars and um yeah blah 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 blah, blah. they're going to host a conference next year on reconstruction we've actually got the first ukraine reconstruction conference happening in in couple of weeks time here in london which will be will be part of but yeah so japan 
now stepping up. Interesting position in Japan. We need to do a, need to do a bit of a deep dive into Japan. They're, um, they're, they are transforming in terms of defence, their defence relationships and posture. But hey, that's a bit of a ramble. Yes, we will, uh, we'll have a look at that. Thank you very much, Dom. Well, Dom Nichols, why don't you go first with your final thoughts? Sure. Okay. Well, I was look, I was looking at a um, a story out of New Zealand, and I, I stick with me about why I was doing that. I'll um, come around to it in the end. But Radio New Zealand, a news outlet, they are running an internal investigation after a story on the war was changed on their website and Twitter channel. So they they put out a a story from Reuters. They put out a Reuters news story yesterday that was then edited to include language much more pro-Russian. So this was a story written by Reuters uh, Moscow bureau chief Guy Falkenbridge. And the original text said the following, quote, The conflict in eastern Ukraine began in 2014 after a pro-Russian president was toppled in Ukraine's Maidan revolution and Russia annexed Crimea with Russian-backed separatist forces fighting Ukraine's armed forces, unquote. Now, when that went out on Radio New Zealand website and Twitter yesterday, it said the following, quote, the conflict in Ukraine began in 2014 after a pro-Russian elected government was toppled during, Maidan, during Ukraine's violent Maidan colour revolution. Russia annexed Crimea after a referendum as the new pro-Western government suppressed ethnic Russians in eastern and southern Ukraine, sending in its armed forces to the Donbass, unquote. Right, a complete, complete change. Very, very different. And they, that was in quotes. So yeah, those, those are, those, that's exactly what it, what it said on the on the website and on Twitter. Now, Radio New Zealand have changed it back and they put out a statement saying they are concerned and take the matter very uh, extremely seriously, are investigating and have taken appropriate action. I, I highlight that because I think, I think it's pretty interesting anyway, a bit, bit clunky. I'm sure they'll be able to get to the bottom of who, who did that. But just to highlight the, 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 the fight, the war that is happening in the information, on the in, as I say, on the information flank of this war, of which we are, yeah, we're a part of that and so are you. And I just urge you again, just just be careful with everything you consume. There's a there's an absolute torrent of information out there. Yeah, there's agendas all over the place. Just be very very careful. But I thought that absolutely highlighted how how this can be, how words can be twisted or invented to add a. I mean, it's not not especially harsh some of those things, but you know, just it's the drip 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 effect. So just got to be careful with the um, with where you're drawing your information from. Thanks, Tom. Natalia Vasilyeva, what are your final thoughts ahead of this weekend? Yeah, I guess I just wanted to go back to the Kahovka Dam disaster. Obviously, there have been so many war crimes perpetrated by Russia in, in the space of the past 16 months. And um, a lot of those uh, war crimes are getting the, the attention that they deserve from kidnapping Ukrainian children to killings of civilians. And um, I think it would be very important to keep an eye open on what's happening on the Russia-occupied left bank and uh, on what's been happening in those days since the dam uh, was blown up, uh, because it looks like that's um, what, what, what happened there. Um, it's definitely something that war crime prosecutors would be interested in if we're talking about Russian soldiers um, not helping locals, refusing to help uh, evacuate or um, rescue locals from the flooded areas. That's uh, Obviously, there's, there's less attention to that and there's, there's less access, there's less we know compared to, um, say, Ukrainian areas that were... Um, 
liberated and you know there's an access there's an access to those areas and it's easier to investigate those crimes so um i do hope we keep an eye on uh, what is happening on the left bank so that we can document uh what really has been going on there from the russian side On Wednesday, I had the pleasure of speaking to Serhi Jadan. Serhi is a poet, a musician, a writer, huge on the Ukrainian cultural scene. His band, Jadan Isabaki, were doing a gig in London. I wanted to hear a little bit about creative life during the war and his thoughts on the war as a Kharkiv native. Huge thanks to a friend of the podcast, Sasha Dovzhik, who translated. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much, Sasha, for translating um, for us. And Sahib, what a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for your time ahead of your concert here. Can I start by asking, um, for those people um, who don't aren't familiar necessarily with you and your work, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your band? My name is Sergei. I'm, I'm 49 years old. I'm from uh, the city called Kharkiv. I'm a writer, but I also have a musical project. It's uh, called Jadan and Isobake, Jadan and the Dogs, and it's 15 years old. I looked at your, your profile over the past sort of 30 years. You've been hugely involved in, in sort of protest politics, that sort of thing. How do you think Ukraine has changed uh, politically um, in the past few years since the start of the full-scale invasion? It's become more active in the past years. That it has felt its powers, and especially in the past few years, I feel like a new country is emerging, a new country is shaping itself before our eyes. Sasha told me before we started this um, that you've spent um, a lot of the time recently on tour um, around Europe, performing a lot. Can I ask you, um, creatively, how has the last year and a half impacted you? How has that changed what you've been writing and, and how you've been writing it? Uh, the past one year and a half has changed everything because we've, uh, we are now in the big war and it has an impact on all aspects of our life, on our tactics and on our strategy. We are uh, all trying to help our country, we are all trying to support our army, and unfortunately at this point our life is defined by the war. Can I ask, how, how do you, as an artist, how do you um, bear witness to, to the horror, to, to what's happening? How do you find the words uh, to, to, to write about it? I'm trying to find words to describe what is happening, but of course a war is not the best time for literature. But it is very important for literature to keep going, uh, for new works to be written, for new songs to be written, um, because it's one of the ways to describe and to bear witness to our time, to what is happening. Over the past uh, year and a half, you've been touring underground stations during bombardments by Russian forces, so military bases and refugee stations and camps. Could you tell us about your experiences there? What, what did you see and, and how did you, how did those gigs um, go for you? It's uh, hard to describe this as just concerts or tours because first and foremost it's uh, the, ways to ex- the way to express solidarity. Uh, what I saw, I saw a lot of pain, a lot of despair, but also a lot of hope and a lot of love in, in the eyes of those for whom we sang. You've been touring a lot um, 
around around Europe, Sasha, as, as you've said. Um, what do you make of the reception you've received? Um, you, you must have seen lots of support from people in Europe, people in the UK. Do you think that's changed much in the past um, year and a half? Um, what, what's your impression of support for Ukraine? It's very touching. We saw a lot of support and solidarity uh, in the audience, a lot of support for Ukraine. But what is the most important thing, uh, thing is for us to win and for this war to uh, be over and be over with Ukrainian victory. You're originally a native of Kharkiv. Um, for lots of people around the world following, following this war on the TV or through the news, They'll have seen images of the city under bombardment um, and lots of horror and death. Um, what would you want them to understand about the city that's not, that's away from that, that's not that story? Uh, I don't know actually what else we can talk about uh, apart from the war and apart from destruction. It is uh, bloody, it is painful, but unfortunately war is what fills our life right now. All this destruction is something that we will have to rebuild in the future. So um, unfortunately the war is the only thing we should to fixate on right now. We have lots of listeners um, from around the world, not just in the UK, most of all actually in the US. What is your message to them? Uh, Ukraine is fighting for its freedom, its independence and its future. But while we are fighting for these things, we uh, fight not only for ourselves, but also for the freedom, independence and future of the entire world. Uh, we, I would like to thank all those who support us and just to hope that this support will not vain away. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are Louisa Wells and David Knowles.